Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Cause deep time will blow your mind. It's good to see you, sir, and I missed you, man. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while, like one week. Well, <laughs> I'm so glad you you love me so much. You miss me. Well, I do, dude. It's been fun. You know, I've been enjoying this, and uh, you know, it's actually prompted me to do a few things. And I've I've been doing. I, I did this kind of crazy thing. I'm pretty excited about. Uh, you want to you know about it? Yeah, you know, I've been doing these walks. Yeah, around town, right. and it right. still has not stopped raining. Even into this new year, it is still raining like cats, dogs, and anarinkas, anchorinkas. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's. Is that, what the, is that what yeah. the salmon's called? The anchorinkas. 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 But I got it right, right? Yeah, sort of like uncle almost, but anchorinkas. Right. But like... and what is that? Is that the giant salmon, or is that the regular salmon? No, that's <laughs> the saber tooth. No, that's the genus once again. The genus. The genus. <laughs> okay. Oncorhynchus is the genus of all the salmon all species. All the species. All the, so all the, the Pacific, king, the, the Pacific right. salmon species. Got it. Got it. Oh, what's the got Atlantic? It? Hey, what's the what's the stained flesh that you get in your in your grocery store that's farmed? What species actually, is that? That's a different genus altogether. So it's right. not even the same animal, dude. It's in the same different genus in the same family. Right. But it's, Atlantic salmon is the genus is Salmo. Salmo. Oh, and this so, one is the Pacific. Ancarinchus. Ancarinchus. Why are they such different sounding names? Because different scientists named them, and there was some, right. Yeah. That's so crazy. I was teaching you. About, I was telling you about uh, Corvus corax and Corvus brachyrhynchus. Right. So what? You're, that's back to the crow and raven. That's right. So realizing that dinosaurs are alive and with us, and that we have ravens here, and ravens are residents. Crows move through. Ravens stick around every day. And I've been walking every day, and I've been recognizing these ravens. When you hear the, so I did it, this thing, man. But it, okay, but in the forest, when you hear the. And you hear that in the in the deep forest of Ketchikan. Is that a raven or a crow? Usually in the deep forest, it's gonna be a raven. That, oh, and they have a much sound. deeper, a much deeper sound. You know, it's more of a crow. What's the ones that click? The, the... That's a raven as well. But crows will be have more of a caw, caw. ravens okay. have more of well, a well here. Right now I'm going to edit in the sound of a raven in the Pacific Northwest Forest. Okay, and then you should do a crow. There they are. All right, so tell me what happened. So here I started doing this thing, you know, they're resident birds. I figure if, and then I, I ran to this guy who said he leaves chicken thigh bones out for the ravens every now and then. I went, wait a minute, I eat a lot of chicken thighs. If I was to walk down the hill every day at about the same time and leave a, a bone on the same spot every day, 
after a while, and I've heard about Ravens recognizing people and they get pissed yeah, off at people yeah. like these researchers that tag him at the University well, they of have Washington. Theory, they're one of the few animals that have theory of mind. They. I figured these Ravens are going to get to know who I am if this right. old man puts a chicken bone out there every day. Wait, do you put meat on the chicken bone or just a bone? No, it's just a well-gnawed bone, but right. uh, I've been doing it for like 10 days. Really? And about seven days into it, you know, they would start to, I could see them kind of watching here or there, but now... I walked down the hill and yesterday, David, <laughs> so cool. And I put it in the same spot on the railing every day. And actually, as I approached the spot on the railing, uh, on the railing where I was going to put the bone, a big raven landed right there, waited no for me to come. No way. Yeah, waited for me to come, hopped away a little bit as I like, you know, put it there. Then I stepped back and boom, he got it. And as soon as he got it, another raven came down after him. I put another one out, and that raven got that one. But actually, no, that raven got preempted by a seagull. The seagull grabbed it, and then that raven went flying. Anyways, the ravens wow. know me. They know wow. me now. But so how been... skittish? How skittish are they when you're close? Oh, they're very smart. They're very smart. They kind of they they know you're watching. They right. usually I've been finding out they would wait until my back was turned to snag, oh. snag the bone. But now this one yesterday landed in front of me so i'm gonna see but I, I should stop this because i don't want them to start following me and i'm messing with they're semi-wild birds well you know? yeah but not in a fishing town you're not messing with their the way they eat you know no no way with all the yeah these are just little snacks yeah what so, i suggest you and do, i'm recording all well, this good well i'm going to add to it do you have one of those little tiny clickers you know those things you click yeah every time you place it down just do one click so you associate a sound with the placing of the tree well actually i had this thought that ravens can learn to talk they can they can learn they to can. talk yes yes they and can. i thought every time that i put down the the bone i would say i am a dinosaur ah see what i'm where well, i'm going I, with this? I don't and know then, how you teach them to talk they, they would say i'm a dinosaur yeah and i know I but i don't know a... if that's i don't i don't know the, the, <laughs> I, it's a great idea but i don't know how the people that own corvids teach them to talk i think well, i don't necessarily think i need thing. to do the click thing because i think they actually recognize me and i realize my my glasses my right, white right, beard right. the guy with the hat right and i come at about the same time and I do, but like a dog would yeah. not learn this. Yes, would a it? dog would. Yeah, a street dog would learn a it. Cat a cat, wouldn't. yeah, yes. Are you kidding? What do they a say? Seven-year-old kid. Never put no, 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 no. American seven-year-olds would know this, but <laughs> you put food out for a cat or even a bunny rabbit. My girlfriend has a bunny rabbit visits her home, and she started putting out food, and she got to the point where she could pet the wild rabbit. Huh. Well, I guess that is true, but. I figured that I wanted to see if these birds could start recognizing me. And I think they'll recognize me even before I get down the hill because okay, they start so landing you're, you're around me. Okay, so you put together a whole video thing? This is going to be awesome. I have been taking little videos. Great, great. And I've been watching, you know, give it to the crow. I give it to the ravens. I avoid the crows. The crows kind of mob the ravens. So right. I've got pictures of all that. But the ravens to are be a bigger, scientist. They're bigger than the crows, right? Twice the size easily. And, and I... I am documenting this, and I'm trying to be a good citizen scientist and not mess with the ecosystem yeah, and make yeah. these observations. Good. But it's been fun. But it's something I've been doing during good. the lockdown, man. Good. Hey, um, Ray, yeah. today's guest is awesome. You and I have been so excited. It, yeah, we've been... We've been... Our panties are in a bunch. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't wear them, Dave, but... 
anyways. Yeah, I know. But it was his it was his book, his landmark book that pretty much and, and actually a landmark paper he did in 1975 that started the dinosaur renaissance. He's known for the beginning of the dinosaur renaissance when he did he put the article in the Scientific American or did he respond to the article in Scientific American? I believe that paper was on warm-blooded endothermy, and that was published in 1968, according yeah. to my records here. Yeah, but that was uh, John Ostrom. But Ostrom was the first one to to state that dinosaurs had a high metabolism and were most yes. likely warm-blooded. But it was our guest today that pretty much began the dinosaur renaissance in the world today. And our guest today was a student of Ostrom's and uh, Ostrom Ostrom and uh, really took it and he published this book uh, that I'm holding. Shall we yeah. reveal? This yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Robert Bacher, author of The Dinosaur Heresies, Bob Bacher, Dr. Bob as he's known. And yeah. I think we're going to call him Dr. Bob today. Yeah. He... I read that book in 1989 and that was the book that led me to reading Stephen Jay Gould, A Wonderful Life and all. It was... It was John McPhee, would put, which put me down the geologic wormhole, and it was Bob Bacher who put me down the paleontological wormhole as far as literature. And I, being a lifelong dino lover, when this came out, I, I just had to have it. And I, uh, Bob is an incredible artist as well. He does Yeah, he did all drawings, the drawings in the Dinosaur the Heresies. In yeah, and, and there's some of them are really funny and, and almost as good and funny as yours, Ray. Well, I uh, thank you, Dave. It's very nice of you. About, but you, you know, know where he is? It's really, really fun. Yeah. Do you know where he is right now? He's in a museum with a window looking out over the Morrison Formation. Yes, I think he's at the Morrison Natural History Museum in, Colo in Morrison, Colorado. Right? Yeah, so let's zoom him up. Let's call him up and Let's let's use use the old rotary, will you, man? Ray, do you want to introduce me to our <laughs> distinguished guest? Hey, David Strassman, meet Robert Bacher, also known as Dr. Bob, paleontologist, author, dinosaur heretic revolutionary just all around amazing guest artist as well pretty good singing voice really <laughs> in welsh uh -huh. in welsh <laughs> all right hey uh dr bob it is so nice to that you've joined us and thank you for joining us and this is david Strassman. uh you and i met briefly i don't know if you recall but we met uh, at dino palooza in mm -hmm. wyoming in the year yep. 2000 with kirk johnson when we were working on our first book Yes, indeed. Now, I've got to tell you a story about you. Okay. Oh, oh okay. Uh -oh. Now, I was growing up in a time when there were very few dinosaur books. And yes. the one I loved was by Raymond Dittmars, curator at the Bronx Zoo, curator of herpetology. In his book, he opened it up, and there were maps, maps of the world, maps of the U.S., uh. figures of the fossil animals found there. I loved it. And it gave a hint, a whiff a little premonition of what cruising the fossil highway would become. Wow. Wow. You, you know, if you saw the big map that I did for that book, I yes. have you right there by the Como Bluffs. So Indeed. next to a stegosaurus. You put you put Titanoides on the map. What's Titanoides? That was wonderful. It's one of my favorite furballs, Titanoides, the Sabretooth. Oh. Sabretooth vegan. Oh, right, 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 right. Titanoides is 
Uh, it's a Uintith ear, right? No, it's the other group. Oh, wait. All right, I screwed group up. Of amblypods, <laughs> the slow footed, plodding, small brained, and in this case, saber tooth. That's right. Tutor. That's right. Absolutely right. Hey, so actually, he's talking about where it all started. Um, well, the question is, are you a paleo nerd and how yeah. did you become one? How did yeah, you become how did you, one? How, how, where did it all start with you, Bob? This is a true story. Unlike most of our conversation, this is absolutely <laughs> a true story. Fourth grade, I was pretty good with ships. I scratch built models, wooden models of battleships and submarines and aircraft carriers and historically important ships like um, the Olympia, uh, Commodore Dewey's flagship, 1898, and planes. I had no interest whatever, dinosaurs or fossils. And it was a spring day in the sunroom of my grandpa, and he made houses for a living, made houses. He had made this house. And on the, on the very wide table in the sunroom was a pile of Life magazines. Well, so I'm looking for pictures of ships or planes. And there was this Life magazine, and on the cover it said, world we live in and there was brontosaurus and stegosaurus and allosaurus and i opened the book and there were pages and pages and pages not of not just of dinosaurs this is the important point and there are some important points important point is i recognized it as a story right ah. the story i had ever read it began with jellyfish in the precambrian oh now, wave after wave of organic change. And there were red beds, Permian animals, Dimetrodon. And then there were Triassic critters, Latiosaurus, and Padokisaurus, the only dinosaur named by a female scholar in uh, the early 20th century. And then into the Jurassic with Brontosaurus and Allosaurus, and then into the Cretaceous with uh, two pages of sea reptiles. And yeah, then the beautiful stuff. And then and the, the early mammals, including some that looked like titanoides, but no fangs, no fangs. Some That's right. Wonderful story. And wait a minute. This is the important point. And top of the important point, the first page referenced St. Augustine. And the, the writer um, said, the age of the earth and this, the, uh, the schedule of creation is complicated. It's not easy. Ah. Great, and some of the great scholars, St. Augustine. Well, St. Augustine said that don't take the Bible literally as far as time, right? No, he said, take it literally, but realize that these units of creation are not units of our time. They're units of revelation to your mind and spirit of how to understand creation, and that it being a Jewish document, the evening and morning of the first day, Jewish calendars begin in the evening. And St. Augustine wrestled with this and said, what was happening in the evening? And he said, okay, it was the angels got a view of creation. They got a hint of creation. But in the morning, they saw the glory of each unit um, completed. And it was a little Almost like, like geologic ages. Fireworks. It was like watching fireworks. Oh, wait, like, or the Big Bang. That's the evening. And that, oh, Louis! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, first page, Life magazine, and then the next page was Birds of Paradise, and it explained species. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Speciation, ah. Birds of Paradise, and lizards evolving different colors, same species. 
to match their substrate. Say, so, uh, Dr. Bob, those were uh, the Zallinger, uh, Zallinger's painting, right? From Indeed, uh, Yale? and they're important, but even more important was the writing, the story. Yes. I think too many dinosaur books for kids have great art, but the writing doesn't capture the, the brain. Well, I want to I want to ask you about art. So, were you did you start drawing dinosaurs then as a kid? In the kindergarten, I started drawing. I was I drew the first thing I ever drew was dinosaur. What and age? So, I think age four. Ah. I, I, and I'm 66 now, and I'm still drawing dinosaurs. And I drew and trains. I drew diesel <laughs> locomotives and rockets. Hmm. But, but I got to say, your drawing, your drawing style is very distinctive, uh, Dr. Bob, and uh, I, I love your 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 drawings. They're animated. They're just, and I assume that you've been doing that for most of your life. I um, draw in four dimensions. Even as a kid, I I, tra I had trains, and P-47D fighter bombers. Oh yeah rockets at the trains because the trains were full of nazi soldiers but anyway i would <laughs> foreshorten the the thunderbolt so it's coming down away from you and then the rockets actually that could be a reference to saint augustine but anyway <laughs> so i was rotating animated fighting things ships too i would draw the um the front of something coming at you, like the famous Italian battleship, the Littorio, coming right at you. And then when it was, was completely converted to the history of life, I started drawing dinosaurs and mammoths and uh, Demetrodon, a moving three dimensions. Yeah, they're always at an extreme angle, and they're, they're very animated and uh, alive. You really make them come alive. And But you had a job as a scientific illustrator. When I was an undergrad at Yale, I worked my way through the last year by doing scientific illustration of bones for various graduate students. I did a bunch of uh, mammal-like reptile vertebra and limbs for Ferris Jenkins, who became a prof wow. at Harvard. And uh, I got pretty good. And I got so good when I was a grad student, I couldn't afford to hire myself. <laughs> <laughs> So things took a turn for you when you were, well, you were an undergrad at Yale and you yes. studied with John Ostrom. Or is it studied Ostrom? with a bunch of folks, Okay, some very good dissectors. I had a whole year and a half of dissecting things in the basement. There are a bunch of us and um, um, some PhDs, some undergrad students, and we each got several animals to dissect. I did a fruit bat, Teropus uh, rosettus aegypticus, beautiful bat. And uh, I did a uh, caiman, and the, the tall, snouted caiman. And I got right down to the, the fingers and toes. And that was a wonderful a year and a half. And I have copious notes. And of course, I was drawing the muscle attachments onto the bones of the caiman. Uh -huh of the Rosettus bat, and uh, then putting the muscle reconstructions on dinosaur bones. Wow. And you got to go digging out in the American West, did you not? You went on the fossil Freshman year. Freshman, Freshman year. year, we went to the Bighorn Basin, to the Cloverleaf Formation, early Cretaceous, not understood much. And John was doing a major study of this richly fossiliferous 
early Cretaceous, which mm -hmm. had a fauna totally different from the underlying Jurassic. So it was way cool. And it was there when Grant Meyer, a brilliant man whom we miss, Grant Meyer, who was the head of the field program, he found the type of Deinonychus. He found the Deinonychus quarry, four Deinonychus, all adults, one a little bit bigger than the other three. And I learned from Grant Meyer how to map a quarry and how to be very careful, be moving these very delicate, uncrushed, beautiful bones. And then coming back to Yale, I was the first artist to um, illustrate the Deinonychus. Wow. And is that the type specimen that they found in Bighorn Basement? That is the type. That's the type site. And it's a great type because they're four individuals. Now, it turns out Deinonychus is a long-lived critter. Um, a couple of years ago, I went back to the Bighorn Basin, to the very bottom of the formation, which is way different. The type is near mm -hmm. the top. And the bottom is a creepy, blackish, mineral swamp deposit. And we found a Deinonychus. Is that Triassic-Jurassic? Hmm. No, 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 it's no, no. still early Cretaceous. Oh, early the, Cretaceous. The early Cretaceous is like English history. There's lots of different kings and thises and thats. And <laughs> so the the uh, ready and the unready and Vikings. Anyway, there are five <laughs> sets of faunas in the Cloverly. Our specimen from a few years ago is one of the earliest Deinonychus. And it's quite different. Its claws aren't sharply hooked. Now, Deinonychus, the type, is very strongly hooked claws. Right. A sharp lower edge. It's like um, it's like um, a box cutter. Wow. Doesn't Deinonychus mean sickle claw? Terrible claw. No, it means terrible claw. Deinonychus Dino means terrible. Wrong again, Dave. Right. But in a, not a terrible as in yeah, terrible. <laughs> it's terrible as an awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was that beast that you you got to draw it. But that was sort of one of the turning points. Like these are lively, these are active. That was a kill site oh, yeah. too, I believe, right? It, that and became, that was kind of start of the revolution. It's accused of being one of the icons that started the uh, dinosaur renaissance. <laughs> renaissance. renaissance, not yes. I like your your French um, <laughs> renaissance. Yes. But I had done a bunch of illustrations for temporary exhibits at Yale, which tried to capture the uh, choreography wow. of dinosaurs as hot-blooded, some pretty intelligent for their time. Deinonychus, we found, it had a, it didn't have sharply curved claws. They were sharp. Hmm. It's a different animal. Uh, the cloverly, as the early Cretaceous is full of changes and invasions and extinctions. Complicated time. Do you think that that uh, the most recent discovery that Deinonychus without that that's a predecessor? It's a a lot of the bones are identical. They don't change. A, a hmm. general rule is the the entire animal never evolves. Part of it evolves. I see. If you are a saber-toothed cat, the saber evolves. And if you're a homotherine saber-toothed cat, your your upper canine gets very wide front to back and very sharp edged. If you're a Smilodontine, everything's pretty similar, except the fang is very deep top to bottom and pretty thick. 
and not serrated. And Deinonychus evolves that way. And Tyrannosaurs evolve that way. 80%, 85% is stock. They just, evolution pulls out the standard plan and tinkers with a part. Mm -hmm. And is that where punctuated equilibrium comes in? No, that's another can of worms. Punctuated <laughs> is how fast and how suddenly these changes occur. And the changes will only affect part of the animal, part of the blueprint. And uh, Steve Gould, the late Steve Gould, whom all of us miss, um, believed that most of the changes happen pretty abruptly, not in 10,000 generations, not in 1,000 generations, but maybe in 100, maybe in 30. And the Grants, married couple who has studied evolution in the Galapagos and won mm -hmm. the Galapagos Islands, documented nearly instantaneous speciation with changes in the beak happening with one event on one small island in one year. So yeah. can have punctuation. That marks. was empirical evidence of Darwin's theory. Oh, God, yeah. What the Grants found was a hybridization. An animal that, that flew into this little island was a hybrid and started producing hybrid chicks. And some of the females on the island were attracted to this new line of giant, thick-beaked, hybrid, buffed Who chick. wouldn't be, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and their call was different. Their song was different. And so instantaneous speciation. Wow. It's in their book, which I recommend, by the Grants. But wait, some news came out this year that punctuated equilibrium has been challenged. It was challenged, and it's true. The challenges come from studies mostly on continents, and it's true that certain types of fossils, like the wee early horses, the little tiny ones that are the size of terriers, got a good fossil record in the Bighorn Basin with bed after bed after bed, and we're sampling them maybe a thousand years apart or something like that. And most of the changes are modest and take a while. You can almost see them coming. But this is a continent. This is North America in the Eocene. And so you're getting thousands of square miles of sample, as opposed to the Galapagos, where you have this tiny island with this new buffed bird, and it happens instantaneously. Yeah. So both kinds of speciation are now documented. It can happen both ways. There's a beautiful book about the, uh, the work, uh, the, the Beak of the Finch, an author yes. that wrote about the the research but there. check out the grants. Okay, I will. Mrs. Grant, both PhDs, retired. Let me ask you this, Bob. I love the idea, the description of the uh, choreography of uh, Deinonychus and these uh, warm-blooded, active uh, dinosaurs. When your book, The Dinosaur Heresies, when that came out, did did that? It came out in '86. Did you meet a lot of resistance? Oh, God, yes. But wait, didn't Ostrom first propose in the mid-60s that there oh, could have been? It goes back earlier than that. The <laughs> first guy to assemble evidence that dinosaurs were basically groundbirds, hot-blooded, fast-moving, traveling in groups, traveling fast in groups, was the Reverend Edward Hitchcock, Congregationalist Minister and President of Amherst College and the state geologist of the state of Massachusetts. And he was the first careful 
footprint specialist, and he scrutinized the fossil tracks in the late 1830s and published several wonderful papers. And he said, look at these animals. They have hind feet like birds, true enough, down to small joints, and very long stride. They're moving fast, true enough. And they're moving in groups. In herds. What appears to be small packs are great herds. And some of them were as big as elephants. The, the Congregationalist Hitchcock had it all da down by 1838. 1838, wow. my God. Quantitative evidence, which was accepted worldwide that these animals, we call dinosaurs, they were really giant ground birds. Um, and meanwhile, in England, people were digging up dinosaur skeletons and putting them together wrong. They took some of the hip bones, big bones, and stuck them in the shoulder, which made dinosaurs look like, I don't know, a cross be between a grizzly bear and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Very <laughs> Yeah. But they use comparative anatomy from a reptiles is what they were. That was the comparative no, it anatomy. Was, it, was, it was more subtle than that. In the quarry for Megalosaurus, the first big meat eater, Jurassic mm -hmm. guy, um, the bones were mixed. And the bone that we now know was a hip bone, an ischium, actually looks like a wishbone, um, a clavicle. So it was a reasonable anatomical mistake. However, however, if they had paid more attention to the upper hip bone, the ilium, they would see attachment for six vertebrae, the sacrum, where your backbone connects with your hips. There are a series of vertebrae connected to your hip bone. And the more active you are, the more violent your choreography is, the more hip bones have to be attached to more vertebrae. And had they paid attention in 1822, they'd say, well, golly, this animal's built for some serious choreography. Um, but Hitchcock, the best footprint guy ever. And he had, he described dinosaurs correctly before the word dinosaur was invented. Right. It's 1841. He described these ground birds, some as small as chickens but some as big as elephants. He described the world of hot-blooded dinosaurs. He doesn't get enough credit. Makes me want to join the Congregationalist Church. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I wrote, um, I wrote Spielberg saying that he ought to offer scholarships for Congregationalist ministers to dig every summer. <laughs> I like it. They were, all, they were also abolitionists. Thank you. For when uh, when the heresies came out, how much of a heretic were you, and how much? No, that cannot be. It wasn't. It wasn't necessarily the old farts in the field. It, there were a lot of middle-aged farts who objected. Okay. <laughs> however, however, there are a lot of of artists who got it. Mm -hmm. I worked with some of the artists in Sega games. And the artists in Jurassic Park, guys who did the basic design of the animals. And I found it very easy to talk to artists because a lot of these guys had um, human anatomy and animal anatomy. Mm -hmm. Watched animals moving. In the Disney studio way back, they would bring in animals and people of various types. Put them on treadmills. And put them on treadmills. And the artists would rotate the chicken or the kangaroo or the person or the wrestler 
or the dainty um, dancer. And uh, the functional anatomy, the mechanical understanding of the skeleton was much better in Disney studios in the 1930s than in big museums. Because right, that's how you end up with uh, hippopotamus that can do a nice, <laughs> lovely ballet, you know. And, uh... With my whole my whole life, I found it easier and more fun generally to talk to artists, animators in particular, than the narrowly trained PhDs. And I see a trend in graduate schools now that if you want to study dinosaurs now, go to a big name school, mm-hmm. you'll be urged not to think about them as whole machines. You'll be urged to look at every bump and hole in the skeleton as data to run through your computer to generate a theoretical family tree. And that's mm. the only reason to look at bumps or holes. And that's kind of sad. Well, I'm just curious as artist to artist, because I really consider, well, I consider you an artist, uh, Dr. Bob. And uh, what do you do with your... I've seen films of you standing up in front of a crowd with the magic uh-huh. marker and just drawing is, it just comes right out of you. What what do you do with all your drawings? Where, give where them are away. they? You give them away? My standard stick, if I, I'm doing a major lecture about Deinonychus or something, um, or St. Augustine, is I have huge four foot wide drawing paper and I draw maybe 15, 18 different animals, not just dinosaurs, titanoides. Um, titanoides, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or are you into the air? Some animal that makes you think, and the first kid to identify the critter or get close wins the picture. And wow. <laughs> the kid has to agree that he or she will go and do some research and come back to school or the classroom in the museum and do their own little spiel about that animal. Well, you know, one thing I've got to say about drawing is when you draw a creature, you draw an animal, you have to go through a, a thinking process to just know how it's structured. And really after, it's a tremendous learning tool. I think, oh yeah. You know, maybe underrated as a skill. I think so. You know? I used to teach pre-med anatomy to veterinary students and uh, pediatrician students and surgery students. And the first two labs were at the zoo. Mm-hmm. And they'd bring in their um, iPhone or their eight millimeter and do a motion study of two animals that were very different. Like do an elephant and do a tortoise or a, do a uh, meerkat and do a rhino. And then before I would let them dissect anything, they had to do little stick diagrams how the legs move, where the center of rotation was, knee and hip, ankle and shoulder. Brilliant. And try to interpret the stick diagram differences with what they observed in difference of movement pattern, and then put those differences in an ecological context. Now, a big adult male Indian rhino is a bloody big animal. It's as heavy as a female elephant, but you can't imagine more contrasting choreography, movement. Why is that? How does that fit into their uh, social behavior, their feeding? That's one of the most heuristic things you can do is compare a big, gigantic hippo or rhino. 
with a rhinoceros next to a triceratops. I, I've seen your drawings. Many similar. Comparing those. and Yeah, and, many. Now, Dr. Bob, you sent us a fantastic PowerPoint yeah. presentation of images. Yeah. And um, what I've kind of gleaned from many of these images, it shows that a certain Allosaurus got stuck in the ass by a Stegosaurus spiked tail. It did. Now, when I was a little kid beginning to draw scenes, I did the, the requisite Allosaurus facing off against a Stegosaurus. But they hadn't come to blows yet. Uh, and I um, got very interested in Stegosaurus doing my undergrad thesis. And I looked at the front end, way different from most dinosaur front ends, incredibly muscular in the deltoids. The muscles are in the front of your, your uh, shoulder. shoulder. Right. Yeah, in the front of your, of your elbow. Gigantic. And those muscles don't propel you forward. They propel you sideways or even backwards. They're maneuvering muscles. Why? And the only explanation I could come up with visiting the Jurassic Zoo was that an animal is designed for three-dimensionality. And Stegosaurus has no stiffening in its backbone. It's an ornithischian. And most ornithischians, like triceratops, have rods of bone along the backbone to stiffen it. Is that for weight bearing? No, I, we don't know exactly. I'm, you know, why would you want to stiffen? Why would you want to slow your movement sideways? I don't know entirely. Stegosaurus lost those. It's one of the few ornithischians. There's no stiffening whatever. And the sacrum is shortened. This is gigantic. Uh, Schwarzeneggerian uh, front muscles. So its mode of fighting would be to maneuver. And actually in uh, Fantasia, there's a battle between a giant allosaur. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. Giant yeah. stegosaur. And the stegosaur is maneuvering. And swinging that tail. Yeah. And the stegosaur is winning. If you watch frame by frame, you can tell the stegosaur <laughs> Slashed the front of the allosaur. It is winning. And then it must have been paid off takes a dive. You know, it's a guy in jerseys involved with that. <laughs> but you know, with it, when I read your book, Dinosaur Heresies, it allowed me to imagine dinosaurs running and jumping and biting and slashing because, you know, all the old um, stop action animations were lumbering, tail dragging, gray reptilian looking. Most of them, but not Fantasia. No, Fantasia was brilliant. Fantasia was brilliant, yeah. Yes, indeed. And Lost World, the silent yeah. Lost World, 1924, I believe. The stop frame animation with models is brilliant. Was that Harryhausen? Did, did he do Lost World? Uh, no, this is before. Before Harryhausen. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there's a fight on a plateau between a herd of something like Brontosauruses and the attackers are something like Allosaurus. And the vegetarians are the aggressors. They attack <laughs> and, and kick it off the plateau. Giant herbivores are the most dangerous animals in the world. Yeah. People are killed yeah. by hippos and elephants. It's true so, that. By lions, yeah. Well, let me ask you, the stegosaurus we're describing, you're describing the skeleton. Do you think they were bipedal? They could easily. We, we've got uh, tracks. I'm, we've sent you um, animation to show the... Um, okay. 
a beautiful tracks. We have state, we have the best stegosaurus tracks ever found, front and hind, same individual. And what's amazing about it is that the hind leg is a great big pad, um, and the front isn't. And although the front's very strong for sideways movement, mm-hmm. the weight's on the hind foot. The hind is for moving, for propulsion. The front is for maneuvering, totally different setup of muscles. Hmm. They could easily rear up on the hind leg. Most dinosaurs could, even triceratops. The hind foot is three times stronger than the front. We have tracks of those. We have tracks of triceratops. And the stegosaurus front legs are so small compared to the hind legs. Actually, they're funny. Uh, It's a strange hand. There is no palm. But there are five muscular fingers spread out. It's for move, moving. It's, it's four quarters. The weight, the thrust is on the tips of the fingers. But the thrust, the sideways thrust is very powerful. The hind leg is straight, um, not very muscular. Strong, but not very muscular. With a padded foot, it's wonderful design for maneuvering. Um, and I, I wasn't surprised, but I was very happy when one of my volunteers dug out this hips, the entire hips of an allosaur, a big guy. And when it was clean, there was a hole in the bottom of the pubic bone. And the pubic bone's bloody big. Ouch. And we're cleaning it out, cleaning it out, cleaning it out. It was a hole straight through. Something had struck it from beneath. And the hole wasn't circular. It was oval. And the hole didn't go straight through. It was tapered. Really? Weapon with an oval cross-section and tapered and really penetrated that poor allosaur. And it didn't kill him right away, but started an infection which ate away the bone in the hips. That thing was, that allosaur was in pain. Every time it sat down, it oozed green malodorous pus. <laughs> and that's the name of my garage band in high school. That's another green malodorous pus. Yes, what, indeed. What <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking at that photo right now you sent us. There's an abscess. There's oh, uh, God, the, the abscess is and the scary. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it, Ouch. Um, now, it's possible the stegosaur lost the spike, that it didn't come out easily. It probably was gripped by the bone, but that wound eventually killed the allosaur. So, uh, Dr. Bob, is uh, so the trackway that you were talking about with the stegosaurus, can you see that it actually lifts up or it's walking on its rear legs? And then the. You not only can see that with Stegosaurus, but with Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus and Diplodocus. Wow. What? The giant sauropods can, can walk bipedally? The very first illustration made of a giant sauropod, complete skeleton. Bertie. Bertie the dinosaur. No, long before that. Uh, <laughs> there are illustrations published in New York of Diplodocus rearing up on its hind legs. Yeah. And the hind leg is five times stronger than the front. And Triceratops, you think, is a quadruped. The hind leg is much stronger. But what reason would a 90-ton animal have for walking at length on its hind feet? Oh, bunch of reasons, like fighting with each other, with social display. If it's a plant eater. Yeah, but that would be a stationary stand up and rear and fight. I mean, not like walking a mile um, for well, a camel. Probably the <laughs> camels go in the lady is seen. Interesting story, but that's for another <laughs> Camels spit. Uh, 
We know when they evolved their spitting. Okay, wait a minute. They're not, okay, a, a Diplodocus is not going to walk a mile on his hind legs. No, of course not. Right. We, we okay. have tracks from many different kinds of sauropods. We have trackways that go for miles, and they're mostly walking quadrupedally. But, but if you fill up the tracks with something to measure the volume, it tells you how much force, thrust came in the track. We have a beautiful track of a... Uh, Dawn Brontosaurus downstairs here in the museum. And the volume of mud by the front paw is one twentieth the volume of mud displaced by the hind foot of the same animal in the same trackway. That's interesting. Rule is, with very few exceptions, the hind foot produces more thrust forwards by a factor of 10 or quadrupedal dinosaur. But this is also to assume that the the mud that it's walking through is is even, and it, and it has the same consistency of density and water. And it does. You can you can say it. Right. Uh, this has been known since about 1880, and was published for the early Cretaceous of Texas in the 1930s, and the American Museum collected trackways. And you, fourth grade visitor, can look over the rail and see the relatively tiny front paw track right next to the hind paw track. A brontosaurus is not an elephant with a vacuum cleaner hose attached to the front. It isn't. Elephants have more thrust from the front than the back. A rhino has more thrust in the front than the back. A horse, are you equestrian? Do you ride? I have. You can actually sense that when you're riding, that there's more thrust in the front and the back. That's a mammal thing. It's a mammal thing. Dinosaurs didn't do that. It's much more thrust five times, 10 times. Speaking of uh, sauropods and uh, and these battles, I love these battle scenes. Uh, you know, as a kid, that's what I drew. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a paper about how you know, these massive sauropods how would an Allosaurus go about taking one down? In its dreams. In its dreams. <laughs> you can't How about do a it. bunch of them? The biggest challenge for a top predator in the whole history mm-hmm. of is the late Jurassic. Now, a really big Allosaur would go maybe three tons, four tons. That sounds like a lot. But a really big Brachiosaur goes 40 tons. So how are you going to bring down an animal very muscular? That's 10 times bigger than you are. And another interesting wrinkle is the smallest brain, the brain disparity between predator and, and herbivores in the late Jurassic. These muscular, beautifully designed, three-dimensional herbivores, stegosaurs and sauropods had the same design, basically. Mm-hmm. Three-dimensional with something to fight with. Stegosaurs, the spikes in the tail. Sauropods, it's the tail, which is giant, or in the Diplodocids, Indiana Jones's whip. Uh, the whip, incredible. But the brain of a brontosaur or a stegosaur is tiny compared to the brain of an allosaur. It's a strange um, disparity. Oh, yeah. Paper on on the spread of the jaws of an allosaurus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you likened it to the Smilodon saber tooth adaptation. Now, allosaurus is a funny guy. It's the most advanced 
top predator in the Jurassic. Absolutely true. Relatively big brain for its time. Quite long hind legs, extremely bird-like, but the teeth are very, very small and not very sharp. And I think, and the jaws we know could open extremely widely. So what it is doing, it's not a precision biter. It's not trying to drive its fangs deep into a body part. It's using the whole jaw as a um, serrated, saw-edged weapon, a little like the traditional Polynesian... Um, shark club, shark tooth club. Yeah, or a sawfish. Mm. And that worked for the Jurassic. Allosaurus outnumbers all other top predators 10 to 1, with the exception of the, the lake deposits. But in the, in the Cretaceous, they're gone. Yeah. The, the matchup... Predator. So would you have any pathological evidence of a raking motion from an allosaur upper jaw on the back of a sauropod? There or? are raking wounds at the ends of uh, thigh bones and the ends of some hip bones, of multiple closely set teeth removing some meat muscle tissue. But another odd thing about any meat-eating dinosaur, the head works like an eagle head expands to swallow something huge. Um, and if you dig in the Jurassic Cretaceous too, you'll find lots of bones that seem to have been partly digested in the ends. So I think it's wrong to think of an allosaur or a T-Rex or a Deinonychus as, as like a um, saber-toothed cat or a wolf or a hyena that dismembers the carcass with a great deal of power. I think Allosaurus and T-Rexes and Deinonychus would pull off something really big, a whole front limb, and try to swallow the whole dang thing and succeed the way an eagle or a hawk. Really? Yeah. They're going to be eating these giant drumsticks whole? Not only drumsticks, but segments <laughs> of, of uh, rib cage, of shoulder. Watch a big bird in the zoo being fed a large carcass. Sure. Sure. But how would you know that the raking evidence is not scavenging, but it's predation? Well, it's a myth. It's a great myth. One of the great myths is that scavengers are different from predators. The most um, efficient scavenger in East Africa is Crocuta Crocuta, the spotted hyena, hyena, which is matriarchal, by the way. The female is bigger than the male and better hung. Um, she has a false penis, which is a, a badge of her rank. But anyway, Crocuda Crocuda is a scavenger. It's also an active predator. It's both. The Nile crocodile is a predator and a scavenger. Our hominid ancestors five million years ago were scavengers and predators. So it's a, they're different ways of being scavengers and they're different ways of being active predator. Um, but it is true if you compare carcasses that are toothmarked in the Jurassic, with carcasses that are toothmarked, say, in the Eocene, mammals, there's much more damage done in the Eocene. There's mm -hmm. more thorough um, chewing and crunching, and mammal skulls don't expand sideways. Ah. Mammal skulls don't expand like a snake. They've got to crush that bone and food. Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, what? wow. Let me, uh, Which isn't, oh, wow. But wait a minute, we've got to, I, it's got to be, it's a very important thing. Okay. 
<laughs> Professor Marsh, the Yaley, was digging dinosaurs. In, oh, yes. Oh, not far from here. He would announce the biggest ever Apatosaurus from mm -hmm. here, Marsden, a little further south. His hated rival Cope would say, I've got something even bigger, Camarasaurus, and then Stegosaurus, and then the Predators. And then 1878, Marsh came out with a very unusual headline. I have the smallest dinosaur. It's half the size of a chicken. <laughs> right down here. And uh, it was like an owl pellet. It was all these little bones spread out in a layer of mud. And by gum, they were little. And he had a jaw. And he said, look how small the jaw is. That's half a chicken. And I think the publication had a recipe. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> half a chicken on rice. But anyway, I had been bothered by half a chicken for an awful long time. Because no one could find another specimen. Nanos, ah. which means tiny dinosaur. That was the name that he gave it, Nano? Yes. Nanosaurus. Nanosaurus. Yeah. Nanosaurus. And a couple of my colleagues referred bigger animals as the adult of Nanosaurus. There's something wrong with it. And Is it you, an embryo? Uh, if you look at the first image, a couple of images I sent you guys, you're the Ganosauruses, your salad shooters, pretty complicated teeth mostly. They would have a bunch of teeth with wide crowns, which overlapped, and the teeth, as they erupted, as they grew through the um, tooth sockets, they were alternating. So as one tooth got worn down, the neighbor's front and back were still big. That's a standard dinosaur way to make a plant-eating mouth. It's a good way. It's a good way. Nano didn't do that. And Marsh himself said, you know what's funny about my half a chicken? The teeth are all the same size, the same degree of erupted. And there's a lot of root showing. This is funny. Right. But it's a dinosaur, and I'm, I'm making my name with the biggest dinosaurs. I'm going to make my name with the tweensiest. And to this day, it still is the smallest plant-eating alleged dinosaur. But it's not a dinosaur. It's a lizard. He did oh. To lizards, lizards do this weird thing. They erupt all their teeth to the same level, and there's lots of roots showing. So a row of lizard teeth look like, I don't know, a medieval ca um, castle with a whole bunch of pikes and heads. All the same size, all the same. All of the same size. And it gets even better than that. Lizards have, they don't have two sockets. They glue the root of the tooth to the inside of the jaw. It's stiff, they can't move, they can't wiggle. Ah. We mammals have two sockets and your teeth can wiggle a little bit in the socket. And dinosaur teeth, at two sockets and they could wiggle. And there's a ligament that holds the tooth in the socket and the wiggling produces a signal to your brain so you know how hard you're biting in every different part of your mouth. Oh, I had no idea that there was a feedback loop in my mouth. And in crocodiles too, they have that ligament. And this was just discovered a few years ago announced at SVP, if you carefully excavate the inside of your tooth socket, an extinct animal, you can see the mark left by the ligament that held the tooth root into the socket. Wow. Dinosaurs have that. And our ancestors, our mammal ancestors, way the heck back in the Permian had that. Two fundamental different ways of holding your teeth in your jaw. Our way and the lizard way. And Nanosaurus is doing it the lizard way. All of the tooth roots were glued to the inside. So Marsh was wrong. 
Marsh was well, wrong, but then you He found... was right in observing that it was a weird way to right. build a dinosaur. And as a matter of fact, it's a more important discovery. We don't have a lot of Jurassic lizards. It's an important specimen. But you have a, a, a small little creature that you call Drinker, right? After a drinker is small in dinosaur standards, an adult. But it's and named after Edward Edward Drinker, Drinker Cope, who was Marsh's nemesis and ne nemesis of. That's sad. They started out as friends. But drinker is small in a dinosaur standard. An adult drinker is as big as a wild turkey, so it's medium big. But sometimes it gets confused with Othnelia, named after Marsh. That was by my. That my was his middle name, right? Wasn't his middle yes, name? Yes, indeed. Othniel Charles Marsh. Oh, his first, first name. name. Indeed. So. Wait, wait, I have a question about these teeth on the Othniel and the picture that you sent us, which you can see on the website at paleonerds.com. But these teeth look like the dentition looks like a seal, a pinniped, with a strange, a triangular cusps on the cusp. Um, the the uh, drinker tooth is a standard dinosaur leaf-eating tooth, and it is complex, you're quite right. Okay. And crowns are very wide and have ribs to reinforce them, quite right. Um, and many different plant-eating dinosaurs use that basic apparatus, wide crowns that overlap, sort of interlock, and with many, many, many ridges. The earliest horned dinosaurs, cetacosaurs, parrot dinosaurs, have that kind of tooth. Um, many of the earliest Triassic dinosaurs had that kind of tooth, like Platyosaurus, which from the Life magazine, Platyosaurus. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jurassic plant eaters. That's your standard basic issue plant eating dinosaur tooth. And Nanosaurus has your basic lizard tooth. tooth right, right? That's funny. Right. Dr. Bob, you've uh, made some. Uh, controversial uh, theories or statements every now and then, actually taking it away from the bloody dinosaur fights. You once wrote a paper that said, dinosaurs invented flowers. Yes. And the, the floor is yours, sir. I think it's a wonderful idea. Can you explain that? Well, this follows that conclusion, follows the observation that plant-eating dinosaurs, even little ones, have very complex, very efficient croppers for eating plants, plant parts. And herbivores, hot-blooded herbivores, are very important in shaping vegetation today in habitats. Very. Particularly the big herbivores. In East Africa today, hippos rule the riparian um, bushland come out at night and feed, and they have very powerful jaws. And they chop through the bushes, and especially the grasses, Then they go back to the water uh, during the day. Elephants have the most complex and efficient and strong cropping mechanism. Wow! They can destroy an entire tree if there's nothing else. Mm -hmm. And they want to get to the leaves high up, they can pluck it with their trunk, and um, imagine an elephant is, in fact, imitating a diplodocus. The trunk goes up and it's tapered and very flexible. And the very tip of the trunk has lips that pluck the leaves. Hmm. Well, diplodocus has his neck. Hmm. And it's tapered and movable. And the very top is the little mouth which plucks the leaves. 
Um, so anyway, hippos and rhinos too, and uh, elephants and wide-mouthed um, bovids, the, the antelope group, the uh, Cape buffalo, they do a number on the floral structure. They rule the architecture of plants. Now, look back in the Permian, a long time, and lots of plant eaters, lots. Some of them were pushing a ton. Hmm. Short necks, everyone. Heavy in the front, everyone. They were not feeding high. As plants evolved in the coal age and the Permian, they're being fed upon by these low feeders. Like hmm. Gogor, what are they called? Gogordo? Uh... Gorgonopsids. Those are meat eaters, but the plant oh. eaters, some of them are called multi Oh, there are many different groups. Just my give me a couple. My favorite are the par pariasaurs. Right. Which, which look kind of like a, um, a lizard like. A horny toad, which is a lizard. Oh, with the short tails and the and the short legs splayed out like a crocodile. Absolutely, and um, but that's just one of a half dozen group. Right. Land plants co-evolve with low grazing, low browsing uh, Permian reptiles. They go extinct. Who takes over? What suddenly happens to the plants? You have long necks, as prosauropods like Platyosaurus or uh, Ankhosaurus, along next. So suddenly the floral regime is being plucked um, from ground level to 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet for barosaurus. Well, Jurassic is that way. Interesting. Interesting. Well, the plants have to respond. There are no flowering plants at this time. Now, what happens at the end of the Jurassic? Terrible extinction among the, sal the salad shooters, the long necks. They're not wiped out totally, but boy, they're mm -hmm. here. Salad shooters. <laughs> and who replaces them? The big, mostly quadrupedal, wide-mouthed feeders, like the armored dinosaurs, ankylosaurs, or their cousin notosaurs. These guys have wide mouths, um, short muscular necks, much stronger in the front end. They're feeding low, and there are many of them, a great variety. And duck-billed dinosaurs, mm -hmm. uh, iguanodons, their neck which is pretty long, is curved to bring the mouth close to the ground. So all of a sudden, you, the plant world, is subject to a whole different form of uh, herbivory. The salad shooters are like lawnmowers. Mm -hmm. Being close to the ground, even if 30-foot duckbill is cropping only within a meter or two, the plants now are subjected to more concentrated, low uh, feeding in a variety of ways. What would that cause you, the plant, to evolve? You've got to deal with heavy grazing, heavy browsing. Well, you need roots that can regenerate every spring or every season. You need fast-growing, fast-spreading plants. And early angiosperms, flowering plants, are exactly like that. Their advantage over something like a conifer, a needle-growing tree, is that they can spread more widely and as a young tree can grow much more quickly and deal with the um, heavy um, predation of plants by these new low-feeding herbivorous dinosaurs. It's a very abrupt event. So the sexual reproduction in flowers is the response to lawnmowers. Exactly. 
Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I just love love the idea. Dinosaurs and vast herds of them had to have such a huge impact on the landscape. Okay, and yes. the fact that they began to shape their landscape. And really, you know, I know there's been some pushback at, on this idea, but I, I think it's, I buy into it. I, I love the idea too. It's poetic that dinosaurs gave us flowers, man. <laughs> well, the, the time sequence fits exactly. First, you yeah. change the plant eaters, the lawnmowers take over. And then gradually you have this response from the plants that they become more and more. Was there a response of the salad shooters from the flowers? I mean, flowers didn't exist in the Jurassic. Well, I know, no, but you have animals that were not low to the ground and then they started munching. Then the plants respond by creating a new sexual reproduction of flowers. Did the animals <laughs> change after that in response to the flowery? Uh, there are many new kinds of feeding among the low, low browsing dinosaurs. The, uh, the big plant eaters, the most diverse ones, are specialized for cropping, for biting off wide mouths full, like duckbills and iguanodons, pretty wide mouths. And some of the later duckbills, incredibly wide mouths, like a Cape buffalo or a hippo. Uh, and the teeth change too. Duckbills are famous for having hundreds or even thousands of teeth jammed into their jaws and uh, arranged so that they never wear out. They never, never wear out. They, are, they don't get replaced at all in a duck bill. They're, they're replaced, the teeth are so small and they interlock and they're constantly erupting. Constantly. Oh, oh they are, oh, they are. Oh, oh, yes. oh yes. Battery oh, after yeah. battery after battery. Oh, really? In. So do you uh, find that in the fossil that... record? Tons of... Yes, absolutely. If you come oh, really? to Rock, Wyoming, you will find uh, and 90% of your finds are shed worn triceratops. Wow. Wow. The horned dinosaurs grow many, many interlocking teeth so fast that there are no gaps in the chewing apparatus at all. You were about to say that duckbills produce how many teeth in the at any life? one time, a big duckbill can have a thousand teeth in its jaws at one time. Wow. And if you look at the teeth, and please come to our Glenrock digs in Wyoming. If you look at the tooth under the microscope, you can see the growth lines. You can know how long was that tooth in the mouth before it got worn down and thrown out. Half a year? Not a long time. When I read Dinosaur Heresies, and I, in my mind, I can see them running and jumping. Yes. And, and fighting and, and fighting. Courtship, courtship. And courtship. They have to love. They have That's right. But the question is, when in the fossil record do you believe the evolutionary adaptation of warm-bloodedness arrived? And how do you know? Okay. We've been working on this for 30 years, especially in Texas. And we know exactly when it happened. It happened in the late Kazanian, which is a layer of Permian, late Kazanian, as in Ilya Kazan. And that's the um, middle, middle Permian of Russia. We don't have those beds in North America. Russia does, China does, Argentine does, South Africa. South Africa, the Karoo. And this is what, this is what happens. This is amazing. So let's go to Texas, early Permian. Early permanent time of Dimetrodon, cold-blooded critter, who very slowly moved, pretty slowly, his weak knees, lasted a long time, about 20 million years. 
And I can take you to sites in Texas and you dig Dimetrodon after Dimetrodon after Dimetrodon after Dimetrodon. The meat eaters, top predators, are the commonest animal. How can that be? It can only work if the meat eaters had very, very low food requirements, like maybe they have to eat three, four times a year. A big Nile crocodile, if it gets a zebra every six months, it's fine. That's enough. So a signature of being cold-blooded and very efficient, not needing a lot of prey, is that you, the predator, are very common, and you don't need a lot of plant eaters to feed upon. Shorty Olson of Chicago, brilliant paleontologist, was the first guy to say, wait a minute, we've been digging in the early Permian now for nearly 100 years, and nearly everywhere, the top predator is the most common animal. That's nuts! It's not what you learn in animal husbandry or game management. There should be one lion per 20 or 30 wildebeest. Tops, not the other way around. So he said, Dimetrodon was like a crocodile. It ate a variety of prey, many of which were aquatic. And all I had to do was score once or twice. So I started digging in North Texas, the red beds, where there are many, 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 many Dimetrodons. And I said, okay. We're going to look for the missing prey that Olson said had to be there among the aquatics. So we're, we were looking at amphibians, big guys with huge heads and medium-sized guys. Olson was right. We found tooth marks, dimetrodon tooth marks on these aquatic prey mm -hmm. and shed dimetrodon teeth with these big and medium amphibians with tooth marks on them. He was like totally right. Wow. It's what I call, I call this ballistic forensics. You want to know who ate whom? Seriously, do you want to know who ate whom? In the Permian, Jurassic, Cretaceous, it's easy. It's the predators shoot bullets. The shed teeth like bullets at a murder scene. And in the time of cold-bloodedness, a lot of bullets are found with aquatic prey, occasionally plant eaters. Now, you want to know when does this change? Well, when I was an undergrad, I was reading some papers by an Afrikaner paleontologist, South Africa, Lou Dirk Boonstra, <laughs> who Boonstra. apparently was quite a piece of work. Boonstra was studying the Kazanian, the middle, middle Permian. Dimetrodon's extinct. It's gone. All of its kin are gone. Um, and there are not a lot of aquatic prey carcasses that were chewed. So the whole ecosystem, the energy flow has changed totally. Why? Well, I went to South Africa as a grad student to count and measure all of the skulls, of the plant eaters, and the, the meat eaters, just all through. And South Africa has a wonderful collection. And Lou Dirk Boonstra, bless his heart, spent his life digging these things. And it's hard digging. The rock is baked by volcanic necks. And the rock is incredibly hard, but it didn't stop Boonstra. And he, at the end of his life, has accu had accumulated the best Kazanian collection in the world. Just <laughs> wonderful. And he published some statistics. One of the only statistical paleocologists of the Permian. It's wonderful stuff. So I went there to measure everything. Boonstra was right. The carnivores were pretty rare, widely distributed. And the plant eaters outnumbered the carnivores 10 to 1, 8 to 1, 20 to 1. It was in the range of some mammals. 
So by gum, the statistics of the ecology is emphatically in favor of hot-bloodedness right at the Kazanian. And the animals that were the first fast-growing, fast-eating, active predators. High were, metabolism. Yeah, were the higher mammal-like reptiles. They're called therapsids, mammal-like. And some of them got huge. Antiosaurus is one that's on the, the opening page of my scientific American um, article called Dinosaur Renaissance. The first picture Steve you saw is not a dinosaur. It's the right. first warm-blooded top predator, Antiosaurus. These guys had heads 700, 800 millimeters big. Huge. Nasty. But why? But why was, <clears throat> I mean, obviously warm-bloodedness is uh, an awesome adaptation for running No, it's fast. a terrible burden. You don't want to be okay. that way. Well, well then why, well, wait, well, why did it, why did it begin to begin with? Because the other guys have it too. It's an arms race. Wait, you're saying the Dimetrodon was warm-blooded? No, no, no. Oh, follow the story. He was telling. He begins to shift. And he sees the shift happening. Right. And the whole ecosystem. The competition revs and up. Suddenly, how do you answer it? Oh, it's an arms oh, race. But anyway, if we go to South Africa, which we should go, we should help the local economy. They have many museums. Of seven excellent paleo museums. Really good. Um, we want to find a bed that would preserve skin. Go to Boonstra's hunting grounds with the earliest hot-blooded predators. We want to find a bed of, of uh, very fine sand deposited rapidly over a carcass. So as the skin rots, it leaves an imprint in the sand. That's how we get dinosaur mummies. Most of them are in very fine sand and salt. So we need to find something like that for Boonstra's beds, for the Kazanian, because I'll bet you a six-pack of Diet Dr. Pepper <laughs> They were having, they had fur or hair. South Africa is pretty far south in the Kazanian still. They're coming out of a glacial period in the early Permian. It took us a while to find dinosaur skin with feathers in the 90s. And I drew dinosaurs in Scientific American in uh, 75 with feathers. And boy, that ruffled feathers. We know that dinosaurs were naked, like skin is scaly skin. Ray, who was our recent guest that studied? I was going to say Christian Sidor. We we talked oh, to Christian Sidor. Good guy. Christian, uh, and he speaks highly of you too. And uh, Christian talked to us about uh, some of his fossils, the Lystrosaurus, Lystrocanthus. Actually, oh, yeah, the big fangs, the Dicynodonts, yeah. The Dicynodonts, but they also had little pits and for whiskers, you know. Yep. But um, yeah. Hey, we are we are uh, well into our second hour. I I do want to. This is a bit of a segue again, but let me uh, let me ask you this question. I know that uh, you have spent a lot of time since first uh, gazing upon that Life magazine thing about all things prehistoric. So, if you could get in the old time machine and go back to one period of time. Mm-hmm. What would that be, and what would you want to see on that journey? I would want to go back to 1916. <laughs> okay. Yeah, in the middle of 1916, to the North Sea, to Jutland, and I wanted to, I want to speak to the British Admiral in charge, and uh, tell him that the fuses are too sensitive. The British should have annihilated the German fleet. They scored many hits. The Queen Elizabeth battleship was there, and the Warspit battleship was there. And they had these 15-inch 
guns, which threw a projectile that was a ton. And had the fuse had a, if the fuse was more robust, that projectile would penetrate- would pierced the armor. And explode inside. Right. But they didn't. The British were very good in many ways. They had the best artillery. But they hadn't tested their projectiles in the um, testing range. Uh, okay, but wait, 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 Dr. Bob, isn't there a yeah. paleontological <laughs> era? Like or there is a connection. Cool. There is a connection oh, oh, here. Oh, there is oh, a connection. Oh. There's a connection. Oh. <laughs> time, time. Okay. One of us is famous. Well, all of you guys are famous. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, you were going to connect the fuses and... See, I objected to the, the German imperial, hmm, their whole imperial mindset. They believed, and they passed out books to their officers to prove they were the master race, that they had evolved beyond the Belgians. They you felt did it twice. <laughs> oh, but it starts in the First World War. It starts in 1904. That yeah. You can yeah. see the roots of massive genocide, but not anti-Semitism. This is interesting. There were Jewish scientists working with the Germans on their artillery and even on their gas sh um, shells. Uh, but anyway, what they did in Belgium was just, was a war. So come on, Dr. Bob, where's the paleontological ancient connection? Many of my colleagues, who are my age too, who are interested in dinosaurs, are also naval history nuts. The evolution of big ships. If you think about it, uh, there's a parallel, an operational parallel between big animals evolving and battleships evolving. If your your job in 1914 was to design a better battleship, the best one, you don't start with picking a whole new power plant, a whole new style of gun. Maybe your gun's going to be a little bigger, but you're trying to make something a little bigger, faster, a little more powerfully armed that could operate as a fast wing to the battle fleet. And that's what was at Jutland with the Queen Elizabeth class, arguably that for its own time, the most brilliant design of a battleship ever, ever, hmm. probably true. For its time, for what was tinkered with, these are not overwhelmingly novel things. They're tinkered in just the right way. And the proof of that is these ships were launched in 1915. They were at Normandy, 1944. The basic design was so good. The balance was so good. The, the cannon had just the right mix. They were still powerful weapons in uh, 30 years later, and no other military piece of hardware survived. You can't say the airplanes of 1915 were at Normandy. Is there, is there an evolutionary adaptation of, of dinosaurs? Tinkering, tinkering just the right way. New species of big animals usually evolve. That is something totally novel from, no, from stem to stern. Now, having right, just the right mix of tinkering, uh, like uh, Tyrannosaurus, the last family of meat eaters. They're not totally different. They do some funny things that reduce the weight of the forelimb and shorten the torso. It's a more balanced torso. Longer legs. T-Rex is a very leggy animal for something that's five tons. It's very leggy. They interlock some of the foot bones. So although they could expand a little bit, but not much, these are the metatarsals, the long foot bones. Right now I'm holding up a model of a T-Rex skeleton. If that is done correctly, you should be able to see the interlocking. Turn it facing me forwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, see? 
See right there, the center metatarsal seems to be splinting out. It's squeezed between, it appears that the bone is being squeezed. Can you do a screenshot, Ray? Because my hands are full. Yes, now you got it. Got Great. it. Great. That's not a gigantic change. It's a tinkering, but it was just right for the Cretaceous. So what makes them, what apparently made them the best top predator is not the teeth. But some, Gorgosaurus has very sharp teeth. T-Rex has blunt teeth. Nanotyrannus has very sharp teeth and big teeth. At high speed, more maneuverable, they could turn a corner. So with that time machine, where would we find you besides uh, I have 19... a time machine and so do you. This is <laughs> the greatest error of people who talk about dinosaurs. The greatest error is all of us are equipped with the time machine. Your brain can look at the hind leg of a Tyrannosaur and the hind leg of an Allosaur. You can analyze it and you can tell me, you can tell a fourth grade kid, a second grade kid, how they would be different in movement. You've got the analytical machinery. Okay, well, I'm gonna ask you a question, Dr. Bob. Uh, you mentioned to me earlier, you said that half of America doesn't know what science is, so. Not a clue. They don't know what logic is. As an educator and paleontologist, how can we change that and can we? Start early, um, start with, and gee, a lot of school teachers know this. They know that if you wanna teach a little basic observational science, yeah, start with fossils. You can start as early as four years old. I know that you have spent a lot of time in front of the public and uh, you've talked to uh, the, uh, the, the most brilliant PhDs, and I'm sure you've also spent a lot of time with kids as well. Mostly kids, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, which, which audience do you uh, enjoy the most? Well, most of my stalkers are in second grade or younger, <laughs> <laughs> which is an advantage. And there's been a huge gender shift. When I started doing lectures in museums, I was an undergrad, mm -hmm. 60s. And it was a boy thing. Yeah. When I was a kid, it was a boy thing. If you were interested in dinosaurs or trucks or planes or ships, it was a boy thing. And you did not find girls interested. Now there are more graduate students doing good work in dinosaurs or women than men. Brilliant. And we should have known this from the history of paleontology in um, the first professional bone digger who made her living excavating carefully skeletons of uh, big Jurassic critters was Mary Anning. Yeah. And, and a very good artist. We have a bunch of her notebooks. That's true. She, she would do very accurate colored, look, look like colored pencils to me. Colored I didn't know that. I didn't know she did the drawing. Well, she, uh, she has a lovely drawing of uh, Squalaraja, which is yes. the yes. bizarre yes. ratfish that we oh. talked about yep. with... Uh, yep. With Amy and her drawings of the plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs coming from the quarry are very good and worked to get money so she could support her family. It's that famous colored lithograph of the Jurassic Oceans done by uh, Henri de la Beach, pretty good cartoonist. And the proceeds went to support Mary Anning and her wow. um, whole family. So she was really, really good. And, um, you know, I've, I, I've noticed that shift very much so, and especially in doing the show now, David. Yes. We've had a number of uh, women paleontologists. Really good. And well, um, we have enough that we alternate uh, a man, a woman every episode. So it's fantastic. 
Hey, Dr. Bob, thank you for joining us today. We will, uh, it, as Dave said, we we must do this again because there's a lot more to talk about. and Way more. Way more. And really, truly enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to being able to actually see yeah. you in person. At and, and I Both of you must come and dig with us. Seriously. We shall. We shall. Well, thanks. Someday I hope to get your signature in this book. I'll bring it to you and uh, we'll cross paths. When the two of you visit us and dig the Triceratops shed tooth bed. All right. Well, we'll come this summer because we'll both be vaccinated. Dr. Bob, that was so awesome. And what a great interview. Thank you so much for your time. You're very, very welcome. Thanks, Dr. Bob. It's been an absolute blast and a real honor. Glad to introduce you to St. Augustine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, we went to some cool places, did we not? It was, you know. Yeah, we... I never thought we'd go from, from Stegosauruses to the battleships in the North Sea in World War One. But, you know, that's just the fun of um, our show. We take it wherever it goes. We, If the audience can't tell, this is not pre-scripted. <laughs> we, we no, it's not. And we chat with people. We have a few lead-in questions, but it was really fascinating to hear what Dr. Bob had to say. And I really feel like I, yeah, we got to know him, you know? No, I learned, I, it was really cool to kind of explore the flower thing. And there was a lot of bloodshed in this episode. <laughs> I love bloodshed because, but you know what? That's why natural history museums and the dinosaur exhibits are loved by people. These are monsters that once roamed the earth, that were real, they're real monsters. And you just imagine yourself being prey to them. Look at those teeth. And I think everybody has that morbid sense of curiosity when it comes to these giant predators. Well, it's not necessarily a morbid thing, is it? You know, I mean... Um... The great Richard Dawkins said, right now, as we're talking, millions of animals and creatures that fish in the sea are eating each other alive right now. There are millions of these interactions happening the very second I am saying these words. There is a big fish chomping in half a, a little fish. There is a lion in the Serengeti eating a, a warthog alive. Yes. And this is happening all the time. And so we're part of that cycle. We're, we're removed because I shop at Safeway, but we're removed from that. And I think that's what makes a predator dinosaur exciting to look oh, at. Because yeah. you imagine yourself in the draws, don't you? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, nature, red in tooth and claw, right? We That's a poem. Is that, is that a poem? It's a phrase saying right. it's not a pretty world out there. And actually, you and I occasionally look at that one Instagram thing, you know? Oh, nature, nature is, metal? is metal. Oh, my goodness. That's a that reminder that, like, so ooh. it is a big reminder ooh. that the, the animal world is brutal. Ooh. Yeah, but anyways. But look, please understand Ray and I are, are amateurs and we're talking to professionals. Ray is more professional than I am. Thank you for that, Dave. So I defer, <laughs> I defer to his knowledge and uh, you can pronounce stuff way better than I. But if you like what you hear, please tell your friends, please rate us on iTunes. Please go to our website. 
We're going to have all these photos and pictures and drawings that you heard in today's episode with Dr. Bob Bakker, and you'll see that uh, on the website. Yeah, and and it's actually, going to be awesome. What's starting to happen is that I'm being inspired by our episodes and our guests, and I'm starting to create new art. And actually, I got a new drawing just for this episode that I want. Oh, cool! You know, very cool. Uh, knowing cool. who we're going to talk to, but it's cool to know that Dr. Bob is uh, an artist as well, and he gives away all his drawings. I yeah. wish I could. And do a that. good one. And he's a good artist. Oh, you've given me a, you know what you gave me? What did I give you? You drew a crappy Ammonite on a cocktail napkin once. <laughs> and you're forever grateful, aren't you? And I'm forever grateful. All right, Ray. Well, right. I'm signing off from Ojai, California, where the weather is here. Wish you were beautiful. And I'm signing off from Ketchikan, Alaska, perfecting the subaquatic lifestyle. Living underwater. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs>